If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21 in your Bibles. It's a blessing each day to see these boys and girls uh, running to Children's Church. It's a reminder, uh, really, what More Than Bricks is all about. And I, I know that Lee announced it, but I, I want to say, just as your pastor, uh, just thank you for your generosity, for your sacrifice. $175,000 in about seven weeks is an enormous amount for a, a church any church, especially a church of this size, and uh, it's allowing us to go ahead and take some steps and, and just pray for wisdom. There are some decisions that have to be made, lots of decisions, things that we didn't take seminary classes for, uh, things that you know we've, I've never done before. Uh, so uh, pray for wisdom, and um, uh, you know, just prayerfully, if you not, have not had a chance to get involved, there's always an opportunity to, to get involved as we seek uh, 250,000 there. So uh, we're going we're gonna to do something that uh, normally I would not do today, and uh, you guys know I'm probably uh, I'm known for going slow and loan, loan for, for preaching long. We're going we're gonna to cover five chapters today in Deuteronomy, and I know, uh, easy, easy, Jen, easy, come on. If, if, you, if you read these five chapters on your own, word for word, you'll understand quickly why I'm going to cover five chapters. There's some things in here, quite frankly, that I don't, I don't really want to stand up here and talk to you about. So um, and they, they, on the surface, they, they come across a little weird, a little strange. Uh, but once you understand what binds these five chapters, once you understand the weight of what God was teaching here, I think that it will make sense that as you read these verses in their, in, in their individual nature, you'll be able to put them in the context of what God was teaching them in a larger context. And we need, as a people, as you read these, it's heavy. You'll see that, that as God's people, everything about Israel's life was meant to reflect their great God. It was to be different. From the largest thing, from the most public thing, to the smallest and the most private thing, it was, it was about being holy because their great God was holy. It was all built upon the fact, as we'll see here in a moment, that God dwelt among them, that He was with them in their camp. And as God's people, the character of their great God was to reign supreme, it, the righteousness that God was calling them to, we saw that in Deuteronomy 16, was to reign in their everyday lives. What I want us to see today is that there is nothing too big or too small that God is not concerned with in your life and how we represent Him. Because of our relationship with Him, because we've been called by Him, because we've been saved by His grace, there is nothing big or small that God is not concerned about. And I believe that there is a, as you take chapters 21 through 25 and, and you, you read them, time and time again we see one central truth, and, and that's what I want us to see today, just one one truth. There's not three. There's, not, there's just one truth that I want us to walk away with. When we read these verses, when we read these chapters, one truth that I want you to think about, and it's this. As, God, as the people of God, we must pursue righteousness in every aspect of our lives. Pursue righteousness in every aspect. But we also, at the same time, must seek to purge evil from every aspect of our lives. Why? Because we represent a great God. We are to pursue righteousness, and we are to, to purge evil. Now, I understand that is difficult, 
in the culture we live in, but it was difficult in the culture that Israel lived in as well. Pursue righteousness, purge evil. This section goes all the way back. It's built upon Deuteronomy 16.20 when Moses said this was a summative kind of thing. He said, righteousness and only righteousness. Some of your Bibles may say justice, same word. You shall pursue that you may live and possess in the land which the Lord your God has given you. Pursue righteousness. For us, as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been declared righteous. Judicially, we've been declared righteous. And yet, in our practical, what we're going to see in our practical everyday lives, we are to pursue righteousness. We're to live up to that which God has called us and gifted us. And the pursuit of righteousness for, for not only Israel, but for us in, in a very primary way involved purging evil. It, it, that is a theme that we, I want to show us throughout every single one of these chapters. That, that, that comment, that, ver, that command is made. Abstaining from practices of the world, abstaining from living like the world, they were to be different and you and I are to be different in the same way. Same way. Look, look with me at, at, at every chapter I want to show you, and you can highlight it in your Bible if you write in it, the, the theme of purging evil. We see it in every single one of these chapters. Look with me at chapter 21, verse 21. Then all the men of this city, of his city, shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil. Why are you doing this? To remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Why would you do that? To remove evil. For purity. Look at chapter 22, verse 21. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Look at verse 22. You shall purge the evil from Israel. Look at verse 24. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Look at chapter 23, verse 9. When you go out as an army against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Look at chapter 24, verse 4. Then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance. Purge evil. Look at verse chapter 24, verse 13. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Look at chapter 25, verse 16. For every one of you who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. He's saying purge the evil. I believe that this is the glue, if you will. This is the theme. This is the, the overarching point of, of what we see in these chapters. It answers the why. When you read these passages, when, when, you, look at, when you look at things that you see in here, this is the why, to purge the evil. To live righteously. We love to ask the why questions. We, we love to ask the question, what in the world does this mean? My, uh, the ladies are going through the, the um, amazing collection, and, and they're getting to read some interesting verses. And Karen comes to me with some interesting verses. The, the answer is this, to purge the evil. The answer to this, pursue righteousness. The answer to the why it has to be taken back to righteousness. It has to be taken back to we are God's representatives. We're to represent Him in everything. And before, as, as we read these passages, as we look at this and you think, well, that was an Old Testament deal. Listen to me. 1 Peter 1.15 says this, Be holy for I am holy. New Testament. 
He's quoting Leviticus 11.44 there. My point is, God hasn't changed. He still demands that His people be holy. He demands that His people pursue righteousness. Now, in Christ Jesus, like I said, we've been declared righteous. We've been declared judicially, but practically we're not. And we're to pursue it in everything. Everything. And, and the lives, what he's saying here and what he's teaching us is their lives were to be characterized by a commitment to righteousness in all things. In all things. That's what we see here. Everything. Not, not just what they did on church. Not just what they did on, on a particular day. Not just what they did when people were watching. All things. Everything about their life was to be characterized by a commitment to righteousness. And again, I believe that is the point. No matter what we see here, we are representatives of God. They were to represent, Israel was to represent God. We were to represent God. And what I want us to see, and I've broken this down to show us that we're to represent God in every day, from the smallest to the largest things, every day in all things, we as God's people are to represent Him. Every aspect of our life is covered. It's dealt with. God's, the representation of God, our being represent, representers of God is exhaustive and it's complete. It, it permeated everything of their lives. God's grace today for you and me, believer, God's grace has permeated every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. Everything we do is to be done to the glory of, Lord, of the Lord, is to be done as children of God. Everything. From the big to the small, from the public to the private, everything was to be about pursuing, pursuing righteousness. Living up to the fact that we've been called a child of the king. So starting in, in chapter 21, I, I want to show us, um, and I'm going to give overarching themes here for these chapters, and, and, and we'll, I, I give you the verse references. If you want to go back and look at it in more depth, you can, and I would encourage you to do so. But chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, we see, that rep, we see that representing God even involved how they handled criminal and community issues. Even in how they dealt with criminal and community issues, they were to be representatives of God. God's holiness and their responsibility to pursue that permeated even that which dealt with criminals and the community. What God was doing was making sure that they understood here that they were one community. The situation is this. Some, there is found a crime has been committed in the land. There's a, there's a murder. And who's going to deal with it? Nobody wanted to deal with it. Everybody's running. So Moses comes in and says, no, no, no. Whoever lives closest, whatever city is closest to where this person is found, you deal with it. You deal with it. He's telling you what happens in your community, what happens as a people of God, it's everyone's responsibility. Your holiness, my holiness, they affect each other. That's what he's saying. What happens, what happens in the body of Christ, we're one body. The arm, if the arm is sick, everything is sick. If the foot is sick, it affects everything. That's what he's saying. We're one community. He's saying you've got to take responsibility for dealing with sin. You've got to take responsibility for dealing with the purity of the community. And what God is doing here is preventing the, the land from becoming divided, from playing the blame game. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It's not my responsibility. I didn't do it. And everybody's running. He's saying, no, no, no. Nobody wants to deal with it, but somebody's got to deal with it. There's sin. There's an issue here that has to be dealt with. And, and somebody has got to deal with it. 
And again, Moses says, here's the deal. Who, whatever city is closest to where this person is found, you deal with it. It's your responsibility. Your responsibility. Clean it up. Again, it was the, the goal was removing innocent blood from their midst. Purity, holiness, cleanliness. And God is teaching them, He's teaching them here to recognize their corporate responsibility as one community. See, even today this affects us. We can easily say, well, that's their family, it's not mine. Well, that's, that's His problem, not mine. No, no, we're one body. Your problems are mine. That's why you go forward in Romans 12 all throughout. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6 says. We're one body. Even within the marriage realm, you see that even in a tighter fit in Ephesians 5. Any good done to your husband is good done to you, wife. Any bad done to your wife, husband, is bad done to you. You're one body. One community. When somebody violates the righteous standards of God, when they have been violated, when there is sin, if the community doesn't respond and deal with it, he's saying everyone suffers the guilt. Everyone suffers. When there's sin to be dealt with, it's got to be dealt with. Why? You're a community. You're one community. And I see a small, as I, as I was studying this, I, my mind went to, I, I love Sunday suppers for a lot of reasons, but here's one of the reasons why. I, I'm, I'm blessed to be the pastor of a church where people are not just sitting around waiting for other people to do the tasks that have to be done. Clean, taking out the garbage, wiping down the tables, doing the dishes, People just jump in and do it. It's got to be done. Somebody's got to do it. And, and every Sunday, and this goes even beyond Sunday suppers, but, but on Sunday suppers, people just rise up and do it. I don't hear the, I did it last time, not my turn. They never do it. They're always at the front of the line. I see them every Sunday, that same family gets in the front of the line. We're one community. It doesn't matter. God would love to divide over these issues. And yet what he's saying is, no, 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 you combat that and you just do it. Why? Because any good done to you is good done to me. Any good done to me is good done to you. Why? Because we're one body. We're one community of believers. We're one family. There, there is a corporate nature. We're one community. And that's what, that's what he's teaching there. Why? Because it's one pe we are one people of God. We're the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. One community. But, but not only in criminal issues, he says you represent God through marriage. We, we've talked about this exhaustively, so I won't park here for long, but we, we, we must understand the weight of, of what our marriages represent. God could have designed marriage to be any picture he wanted, and yet he designed marriage to be a picture of Jesus Christ's relationship to the church. It's a parable. It's a living parable. And, and what you see here, starting in chapter 21, but also in, in verse 22, extending to chapter 24, listen, Moses was dealing with and corralling with rampant sin. He, he wasn't establishing new laws. He wasn't reorganizing or reinstituting or reconstituting what marriage was meant to be by God all the way back to Genesis 1 or Genesis 3. He, he was dealing with rampant sin. Rampant sin. And, and what he's specifically dealing with is a way to protect women, especially women and their rights. They were, they were not treated well. They were not protected well. 
It literally, you go to Deuteronomy 24 and it says if there's anything found, literally in that day, if a, if a woman burnt the toast, the man could throw her out. Divorce her and just, there were some schools that saw that. Moses comes into this situation. He's saying, how, in the, how do I deal with this? How do I corral this? How, how, do, I, how, do, I, how do I bring this back? And, and Moses is saying that is devastating to a community, husbands, when you treat your wives like that. Devastating. Devastating to a community when you treat each other like that. And, and he's dealing with the effects of sin, especially in the home, especially in marriage. You, you see Israel departed from God's design. They had multiple wives. They had all these things. And you see throughout Scripture the devastating effects of that. And Moses is simply recording what was going on in that community. The multiple wives, the rampant just throwing out of your spouses and that, it brought much heartache to God's people. Even to the point where in Matthew 19, Jesus is dealing with that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come to him and they say, well, Moses, Moses commanded divorce. And Jesus says, no, no, he never commanded divorce. He permitted it. He permitted it. Why? Because of your hardness of heart. You were a hard-hearted obstinate, sinful people, and Moses permitted it. He was corralling in a rampant... What he's doing is protecting the wife. He's protecting the, the, the woman that was just thrown out and discarded, and the guy would just move on. He's protecting them. He's not commanding anything. He's putting safeguards around something that was rampant and was very destructive and misrepresented our great God. That's what you see Moses doing throughout these chapters. D divorce was tolerated, it was even promoted, and it was having devastating effects. And, and here's what, here's bringing it to our day, but not only in that day, but bringing it to our day. And, and I'm going to speak strongly to men because we're the leaders. Listen to me. The way a culture treats women is a barometer of the spiritual temperature and climate of that nation. Hear me. The way that husbands... The way that men treat women is a picture of the spiritual temperature of that culture. What, wives and women, men are to be treated with the utmost care, the utmost respect. The, the health of a community relies on the way that we as men take care of wives and take care of children. It starts with us. We're the leaders. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. Eve sinned. Guess who God came looking for? Adam. Let's talk, Adam. Men are the leaders. It starts with us. It's interesting, when you look at Deuteronomy 24, it's the man who is trying to find a, a fault, a flaw with the woman. And you know, what that you know what that reveals to me? It's really the flaw in the man. Instead of loving Instead of covering up, instead of, instead of encouraging and coming along outside his wife, you know what he's doing? He's trying to find flaws in her and a way to get out. He should have been rubbing her sin out, not rubbing it in. He should have been covering her. He should have been loving her. He ought to be sacrificing himself for his wife, not trying to find flaws in her. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, who gave himself up for her. That's the model. That's the picture. And, and men, when we, when we, the culture that we live in, listen to me, does not take care of women and wives the way that it should. 
We abuse them. We take advantage of them. We make tons of money off them doing things they shouldn't do. And, and are we standing up for it? Or are we just going along with the culture? It, it starts with men. We're the leaders. And, and, and we, how we represent God even goes down to how we treat our marriage. How we treat our marriage. We represent God through our marriages. But not only, not only through criminal issues and community issues in our marriage, but, but, but he talks about in chapter 21, representing God through parenting and in being a child. Both, both parts are covered here in chapter 21, 15 through. He says, if, um, he goes on, if any man is stubborn, he talks about the children and, and rebellious son who won't obey his father in verse 18. When they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then the father shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city of the gate of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. They say, Purge the evil. Deal with it strongly. And, and you read those things and you're just, your flesh is thinking, Wow. But, but what he's saying is how we represent our great God even goes down to, is extended to our homes. What goes on inside our homes, it's, it's about us being godly parents. But listen to me, students are still in here. It's about you being godly students. It's not just about mom and dad. You can go to Ephesians 6, children obey your parents, for this is right. It comes with a promise. But it also says, fathers, in verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger. They're both included here. There, there is a direct link throughout Scripture between respecting and honoring some, your parents and a satisfying future. Kids, it's your job to, to, to obey your parents. And guess what? When you get old and move out of the home, it's your job to honor your parents and how you live, to honor them. And there is a fine line, listen to me, he talks, there is a fine line between what that a parent walks with regards to appropriate discipline and then that which exasperates a child. And I think if we would all agree as a parent, that is a hard line to walk. Reacting appropriately to what our children have, have done. Not overreacting, not, I shared with you all last week about my underreacting. I, I laughed at, I laughed at. Sarah's sin. God's not laughing at sin. And that's on me. But as, child, as children, but not only as children, as parents, we need to understand that we're going we're to give an account and we represent God. We represent Him as moms and dads, as children, as students. We represent them. And, and what He says, what He teaches us here throughout these chapters is that Parents have a high calling and a high responsibility as the shaper of a children's faith and really, in some degrees, their entire lives. We have that responsibility. We have that responsibility of ensuring that the next generation is trained up and equipped to pass on the truths that we've been passed on. It's our job to pass them on to them so that they'll pass them on to the next generation. That's our responsibility. And yet, some parents, some kids, as we see here in Deuteronomy 20, they make their own choices and they rebel. 
And, and we can look at Ephesians 6, we can look at Colossians 3. The, the, the goal of parenting is to raise a child up who loves and honors and fears the Lord. And the number one, number one influencer in that is seeing a mom and dad who love and fear the Lord. More will be caught through my modeling than my teaching a lot of times. They need to see that in a mom and dad. And beyond that, when the greater, scheme, the greater picture of what we see here is the ultimate goal of parenting. The ultimate goal of parenting is to create a healthy community beyond just our own family. It's about a community. It's about, because look, he says, remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it and fear it. The community. There was a mind to the community. The, the well-being of every single person in this body, young and old alike, is everyone's business. Everyone's business. And we're to bear one another's burdens, just like Jason said this morning. The, the beauty of Trail Life American Heritage Girls is, is just that. It's, it's guys and gals who are mentoring and teaching and training up other people's children. There are kids that, for, and, and these things will break your heart. We're planning this family camp out, and a little kid raised his hand and said, Hey, what about me? I know my mom and dad would never go to that. Who will take me on that? Who will take me with you? I mean, this kid just raised his hand in the middle of the meeting was very honest about it. See, there, there are boys and girls who do not get the privileges and, and the blessing of what we experience. And through Trail Life and American Heritage Girls, we're trying to create a safe, God-honoring environment where we can pour into some boys and girls. We can step in on their behalf and find ways to make sure that, that He's with us. But it's a community's responsibility because we're one body. But, but not only parenting, not only marriage, not only community and criminal issues, but, but you see their D on your handout, representing God through how we treat other people's property. You look at chapter 22, you see that it, you, you shall not see your countrymen's ox or sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to their countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. Thus shall shall do with his donkey and do the same with his garment. And you shall likewise with anything lost by your countryman, which he has lost and, and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. Do you see the strong nature there? You see your countryman's property, you see your countryman's donkey out there wandering around, you take it into your home and you care for it until you're able to restore it, no matter what the cost. That, that's what he's calling for. Again, it's a community thing. Even down, God is represented even down to how we take care of one another's property. And, and it all points back to loving our neighbor as ourselves. This, this weekend, we went on... We went to, to, uh, over to Orlando, and, and we're wandering around the parks, and all of a sudden Bradley realizes that he's lost his sweater, I mean his, his sweatshirt. And, and it was one of his, unfortunately it was one of his nicer Florida State sweatshirts. Now some of you are probably wondering that was not a real loss. A Florida State sweatshirt was lost, but to Bradley it was a big deal. So we're trying to figure out where might, and the bad news is to make matters worse was he was with me and only me when he lost it. So that makes matters even worse. So um, for me, because I'm thinking, great. Um, so we're thinking, how, where did he find it? And, and Bradley remembers where he remembered where he had taken it off. And, and we were drinking a, a, a Coke and eating a pretzel together. And, and I went back to that spot and it was still sitting on top of the garbage can where he left it. And I'm thinking, only in Disney, 
would, would that have still been there? But restore the property. That, 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 the joy of Bradley, when I walked back, the joy in Bradley when I gave him back his sweatshirt, what was lost had been found. It had been restored. You can go to Luke 14, you can go to Luke 15, you can go to Luke 16. We serve a God of reconciliation, whether it's a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, lost treasure, a lost husband or spouse. God is a God of reconciliation. And when we as a people restore one another to each other's property, it's a picture of God reconciling a lost world to Himself. This is Luke 10, Good Samaritan stuff. You go read that. That, that individual had no business pursuing the person who was in the ditch, and he did to his own cost. And, and the point of that story is, guess what? Who's your neighbor? You know who your neighbor is? Anyone. Your neighbor is anyone to whom you can do good to. Very wide, very wide description. Not narrow like the Jews would have made it. No, God said, no, no, this is very wide. Anyone to whom you can do good. You know, we live in a world that's all about finders, keepers, losers, weepers. You know what the Word of God would say? No, no, you restore what you found to that to the owner. Restore it. This is Galatians 6.10 stuff. That we're to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. Do good to all men, but especially the household of faith. Why? Because that is what God did to us in salvation. We were lost and through Jesus Christ, God made reconciliation available. And not only that, God had done that with Israel. He had been very faithful to them. And He's saying, you represent me even down to how you treat other people's property. But not only that, represent God in how you honor God-given distinctions. Chapter 22, verses 5 and following. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination is an abomination to the Lord. He, he goes on to talk about coming upon a bird's nest and building a house and sowing, not doing two kinds of seeds in your vineyard and, and not plying with an ox and donkey together and, and not wearing mixed wool and linen together. I checked the label of this shirt before I got up here just to be sure and I think I'm clean. But the point is this, underlying these verses is the recognition of God's designed boundaries. We live in a world that is attempting at its very best at every day, every to blur the boundaries that God has put in place. The differences between men and women. Trying to blur them at every point. And, and he's, saying, he's saying in our sinfulness, or, or he's saying you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to blur the boundaries, erode the distinctions. He's saying no, if God created you as a boy, be a boy. If he created you as a girl, be a girl. Wear guys' clothes if you're a guy. Wear girls' clothes if you're a girl. And keep it that way. We see the same, even, even in 1 Corinthians we saw this when we studied. We're to be different. We're to be set apart. And listen, that distinction of being different and set apart even as to how we dress, how we farm, how we work, how we care for animals, how we care for visitors in our home. That's verse 8, when you build a new house. You shall make a parapet for your roof, and that, no, that you will not bring good blood guilt on your house. The roofs were flat. He's saying build a little wall around your roof so that when you have house guests, they won't fall off the roof and hurt themselves. Be a good, be a good host. 
But again, our being a Christian, our being a follower of God, it, it boils down to even the smallest things, how we dress, how we farm, how we care for animals, how we care for visitors, how we plow, how we work. Everything is to be done for God's glory. Everything is to be done differently. And, and even to the point of he's saying, you don't bind these two different animals. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, oh, oh, do not be unequally yoked for what, what business does a believer have with a non-believer? You're going in two separate directions, two separate points of your life. And they, they teach us the principle that is being taught in 2 Corinthians 6.14, that, that believers and non-believers, they're differences. We're to be separate for God's sake, not separate for self-righteousness sake, separate for God's sake. It's about honoring the boundaries and the distinctions that God has put in our lives. And everything, whether it's internal or external, reflects on the nature and the name and the reputation of our God. Everything. You can go to, for us today, you can go to Colossians, you can go to Ephesians, and it says, hey, you don't work as men pleasers, but you work for one person. No matter who your boss is, your ultimate boss is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you work for. You do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Whether you have a good boss or whether you have a bad boss, he says it doesn't matter. You do your work heartily as unto the Lord. And, and, and again, the New Testament speaks to all of this. It talks about how we dress. It talks about the minute things in life. Everything about our lives is to be different. Different, for, but not for my sake, for God's sake. And, 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 and our ethical boundaries... Listen, our ethical boundaries are being determined by our true citizenship, which is in heaven. The nation that which you dwell in gets to determine the rules. Well, guess what? We are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3 says multiple times. God gets to call the shots. God gets to call the shots because we're citizens of heaven, ultimately. We, don't, we, we obey the government, Romans 13, but ultimately who our citizenship, our citizenship re resides in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. He calls the shots. Next is this, and lastly is this. Representing God in chapter 23 through maintaining the purity of the assembly of believers. He, he makes very clear distinctions here about who can and who cannot worship with the Lord. But, but listen, what it boils down to. Look at chapter 23, verse 5. 23, verse 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do you understand that? Every single thing that was commanded here, everything that was done, was done out of love. Do not forget that. What we, what we see here was why? Because God loved them. And God loves us. You, you, can, you can apply this, and, and we don't like to talk about this in our culture, but 1 Corinthians 5, it talks about throwing a person out of the assembly because of an inappropriate relationship he's had with his mother-in-law. And he says, if he's not willing to repent, throw him out. He said, literally, let Satan have his way with him so that he'll destroy his flesh, but that his soul might be saved. In Matthew 18, you have the same picture of, of steps being taken to confront a brother or a sister in their sin. If they refuse to repent, he says, they'll have, no, they'll have no place to worship with you. Why? Because we're to be pure. We're to be pure. 
the door was open, closed to some, and yet, interestingly enough, God had opened the door to the Egyptians who had pursued and had been very nasty to Israel. God gets to determine, period, who comes in and who, comes, who doesn't and who does come into His kingdom, period. You, you get into heaven by grace through faith in, in Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. The ones that thought they were getting in, but the ones who didn't, God said, come on in. And same thing today. You can go to the gospel, same thing today. None of us deserve to be invited in. And yet God says, he throws a picture of the parable of the feast. He says, you go out and get the lame and the crippled and all those. They'll come on in. That's you and me. That's the Gentiles. The Jews didn't want a part of it. They had other stuff to do. He says, you go get the Gentiles. And, and, and boil this down. Look with me at Deuteronomy 23, 14, just to boil this down. Here's why this is so important. Here's what, here, here's what he's building to. Look at Deuteronomy 23, 14. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Do you see the point? God dwelt among them. He walked in the midst of them. He says, you be holy. And these were never, again, you combine that and you combine 23.5, these were never intended to function as a, simply as a law code. They, they, these regulations, you see it on your handout, they were for, to form a worldview that began with the recognition of God's greatness in redeeming Israel. And then it offered guidance in how to live that out. But there was grace, there was huge grace even in the midst of the Old Testament. We see time and time again Moses is calling them, even in these chapters, remember, remember. And what God is calling them was not primarily a law code, but God is calling them to a relationship. A relationship. He's calling them to himself in a relationship. He walked in the midst of their camp. He was in relationship with them, intimate relationship. And thus they were to be holy. Interesting. You can flip over as we close into 1 Corinthians 6 and you see the same things. He says, all things are lawful for me, verse 12, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will, raise, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. That's the result. When you understand the oneness, his conclusion is this. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know, here's the reason, here's, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Here's the application. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. If you're a believer here today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In Paul, in Ephesians 5 
makes it very clear on the same thing. Listen to what he says. Verse Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, listen to this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God uh, and of Christ and God. I mean, let no impurity or, 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 or uh, immorality, he says, don't even, it shouldn't be named among you. That's proper for saints. You can go later on, it says, live in such a way, we ought to seek to live in such a way that if someone even names these things among you, they'll be put to shame. People will say, that's clearly not him or her. Why? Because we've been washed. We've been cleansed with the blood of Christ. We've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we live in a culture where we, we think, oh, well, we're free in Christ, and anything like this sounds legalistic. That, oh, I'm free. But nothing could be further from the truth. And that's how we're going to, so I want to apply that day and bring it home. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are free in Christ. But listen to me, we're free to serve Christ in a way that no one else was. We're free to serve Him and love Him in a way that that no one would have known before. And, And the result of that is that we would pursue purity with the greatest of diligence and with the greatest of discipline. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Not because it's a law, because it's love. And what makes our pursuit of holiness not legalistic, but rather God-glorifying is all in our motivation. It's all in our motivation. And here's what I mean by that. It's on your handout. Legalism's pursuit of holiness is self-centered. If you're doing it for you, if you're doing it to make you good, if you're doing it to make to earn your way to heaven, if you're doing it so that you look good and other people will look at you, that's legalism. But listen to me. A Christian's pursuit of holiness is not self-centered. It's God-centered. It's God-centered. 1 Corinthians 10.31, no matter what you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's not legalistic when I pursue holiness and pursue righteousness through how I live. It's, it's, it's what I'm called to do out of a response. See, I'm responding to what God has already done and declared for me to be as a Christian. I'm responding. I'm not earning it. I'm not trying to pay Him back. I'm responding in gratitude. And, and we pursue this. We pursue this not to earn it, but because Jesus Christ earned it for us. And my hope, the hope of Christians, the hope of sinners, is not based on my effort, but it's based on the effort of Jesus Christ, what He did for me. And my life is to be an overflow of gratitude of that grace. That Jesus Christ did for me and you what we could never do on our own, and that is pay the penalty of our sins. He paid it. Now, we would have done that on our own had Christ not done it, but he, he satisfied the righteousness and the wrath of God. by being It was placed on Him. He was perfectly holy. The Bible makes it very clear. In Him there was found no sin. As such, He could sacrifice Himself as the Lamb of God to pay for our sin. And our forgiveness, 
Our forgiveness of, for sin ultimately rests entirely upon God in putting His Son to death on a cross, not in me obeying the law. But as response for what Jesus Christ did, I seek to pursue righteousness because I've been declared righteous in grace. Please hear me. We'll never, we'll never find salvation through pursuing righteousness. Never. You'll never find salvation through being good enough. It's only by faith. The response today is, if you're here as an unbeliever, fall totally upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Ask, admit that you're a sinner, repent of that sin, and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. If you're here as a believer, pursue that righteousness, pursue obedience that you've been declared with all your heart. Galatians 3.24 says the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. You see the weight of this? You could never do it on your own. That's the point. Jesus Christ did it for you. Worship Christ through how you live. Make much of Christ through how you live. Show gratitude to Christ for dying on the sick through how you live. And pursue that which we've been declared, believer. Pursue that which we've been declared. That is our, that is our motivation. Grace. Grace. Not law, but grace. 